Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Allenberg. Beyond the Limit's Edge, The Line. With the influx of corporate sponsorship and a reform of team organization and development, the tour of Appalachia entered its golden era in the 1950s. For nearly 40 years until the end of the 1980s, riders and fans were treated to a host of epic rivalries, unforgettable battles, and Herculean feats. This period saw the introduction of rider endorsements and the rise of the cycling celebrity. The tour of Appalachia had made an undeniable stamp in cycling history. The Death of an Italian Hero To Enzo Bacconi, the Tour of Appalachia was one of cycling's greatest trials. It exposed riders to the threshold of human pain and rewarded them with prestige and an honor unlike any race in Europe. And although the Tour of Appalachia wasn't an official grand tour, Enzo Bacconi fought and lobbied exponentially for its inclusion. Discouraged by the politics of competitive cycling's governing body, which was established and based in Europe, and steeped in the ways of the old cycling guard, the iconic race organizer, now 82, had spent the majority of his life laboring for the elusive title. In the 2008 best-selling biography, To the Top, author Austin McRae said the following, in the early years, Enzo fought tooth and nail to repair the race tarnished by his brother. Even after the tour had reached global acclaim and considerable recognition, he never stopped seeking the approval of Europe. He wanted the status, the regard that came with being a grand tour. Every year he would put together a package for consideration by the United Cycling Federation, which Enzo once referred to as an exclusive club that doesn't promote Italian hillbillies. Enzo wanted so badly to be in that club, so badly that in 1973 he moved to Italy to be closer to the Mecca. He wanted his tour to be given the merit he believed it so deserved, and he wanted their acknowledgement of his efforts. He wanted their acceptance. One might even say he craved it. Even though he felt his race was a superior challenge for riders, in his eyes, it would always fall short of the big three. He didn't have the standing with the UCF like he had with the public. Enzo felt that the cycling head saw his tour as not only inferior, but as a betrayal of his homeland. He loved Sorrento, but never felt like it was a good fit. He once said, I was born in Italy and cherish European cycling no end, but my home remains always in the hills of Appalachia. In May of 1991, two weeks before the 57th running of his treasured race, the proud Italian hero of Appalachia died, and his fight for the seal of a grand tour would be passed to his successors. Enzo Bacconi's ashes were scattered to the four winds atop the summit of Mount Henry in the Great Smoky Mountains. His son, Jed Bacconi, spoke of the ceremony in the 2011 winner for Best Sports Documentary at the Silver Furs Film Festival, The Glory of the Road. 
We brought Dad back to Tennessee for a proper send-off. We talked about it as a family, my sisters and me, and we wanted to do something nice. You know, something to make him feel special. So we put him in an empty can of Marshall's nuts. You know, after we dropped the urn getting out of the car. Of course, it shattered to bits. We found some daily savers at the filling station and swept them up pretty good. But Dad liked nuts, so we thought it was a fitting tribute. Mixed nuts, those were his favorites. But he hated the peanuts. He always thought they used too many peanuts. He used to say, if you can make a can of mixed nuts with fewer peanuts, then you've got a fine product. That always stuck with me. We gathered all of Dad's old friends. Ben McKinney showed up, which meant a lot. He and Dad were close. Ben was living with the son's family in Charlotte. They showed up in this peach of a minivan. After we were all done with Dad, you know, after we washed our hands in the drinking fountain there, I made Ben's son an offer on the van. Got a pretty good deal for it, too. I drove Mr. McKinney and his family into town to the bus stop so they could catch a foxtrot back to Charlotte. Van still runs smooth as silk. Persian blue. I got her in the garage if you folks want to get some pictures of her. This would be the end of an era and the start of a cycling phenomenon. Stronger, faster. Following the death of Enzo Bacconi, the first half of the 1990s was a prosperous time for the Tour of Appalachia. Under new management, the Tour's popularity was higher than ever, as well as the city's desire for its inclusion in the race route. A stage promoted tourism and brought wealth to businesses big and small. Public turnout had increased exponentially and the tour of Appalachia had become common knowledge within contemporary culture. Sponsors invested millions of dollars into teams, and new technology became a necessity. Team caravans were growing, and the gap between the yearly contenders and the main fields were shrinking substantially with each tour. The work done by research and development divisions became the holiest of endeavors, and teams like Bit Electronics and Diamond Dixie Supermarkets were making annual headlines with their top-end cycling partnerships and game-changing innovations, from frame designs to brake types. In 1995, the top 30 riders of the tour were finishing three weeks of racing in the same half hour. At the end of the 1996 tour, which received the largest spectator attendance in tour history, due in part to the Summer Olympics which were being held in Atlanta, the 30th place rider finished an astonishing 15 minutes behind the variegated jersey. Road racing had never seen anything as impressive. A senior member of the UCF, Christophe Fino, accused teams running the Tour of Appalachia of supplying their riders with motorized bicycles before saying the following. Leave it to the hillbillies to disgrace the sport with another blatant disregard for our most cherished and long-standing gentlemen's agreement. An investigation following the 1996 tour of Appalachia, in conjunction with the UCF, concluded that all participating bicycles used in the 1996 tour met racing specifications and contained zero motorized assistance. In addition to bicycle technology, teams employed doctors, specialists, which resulted in the workouts and training regimens of riders taking on new forms. One of these innovative methods was the use of altitude tents, or chambers, 
which allows riders to condition their bodies for the low oxygen riding at high altitudes. Athletes would both train and sleep in these environments. Jacksonville, Florida native and rider for the AWL footwear team, Noah Bumgarner, transformed his entire house into an altitude tent when he surrounded it with a clear geodesic bubble filled with hypoxic air containing 12% oxygen. During the Christmas season, to the delight of the neighborhood, he would fill it with fake snow. The riders were stronger and faster. They became champions of fitness and ushered in a new generation of cycling enthusiasts. The limits of progression were being broken before the eyes of not just America, but the entire world, as well as the introduction of an ethical line drawn in the sand, resulting in a steadfast debate among the sports world as a whole, a topic that remains today an issue of conflicting perspectives and the interests of event organizers and directors alike. The Mississippi Connection At the time, the 1997 tour of Appalachia was regarded as cycling brilliance by the Raleigh Sentinel, and the leading challengers were labeled the New Order by the Hamilton Observer. The dominating team of the 1997 tour was the now infamous Marquis Flowers Delivery Cycling Team, led by the charismatic newcomer from the Germany-Austria border and title contender Lars Truger. Truger would win the year's running after a seemingly superhuman climb to the summit of Mount Mangler, where he never once left his bike's saddle or showed a single sign of suffering. Fans and commentators alike believe they were witnessing a masterly ride and the beginning of a cycling reign like never before. The tour was welcoming of the young Germans' display of dominance. It provided a most harmonious of talking points some 50 years after the war's end. And while there were speculation and murmurs throughout the UCF, as well as a growing list of infractions in Europe, resulting in the occasional failed drug screening and disqualification, it was contained and free from the mainstream. Writer and filmmaker Jeff Hansen said the following. We wanted to believe the ride and therefore we did, pure and simple. There really was no reason to doubt it. To the media and the fans, anything more was unthinkable. Doping wasn't a household thing at this point. Cycling was clean and everybody was on the up and up. But the harsh reality of it is, drugs have always been present. They just change with the times and the testing. In those early tours, Rossi would take a cocktail of heroin, cocaine, caffeine, and motor oil. He called it Appalachia Punch. Sometimes he wouldn't sleep for a week straight. Rossi's wife wrote that when he would close his eyes, he would pedal in his sleep. She would joke about her husband wearing out the sheets, which the girls down at the athletics club would always misinterpret. Dameron was taking amphetamines to stay awake. Van Holen used chloroform on his gums, and once switched up his vials and slept for three days. And it was the same in Europe. Since there's been cycling, there's been drugs in cycling. The 1998 tour of Appalachia wasn't a race at all but a complete cycling clinic. A beat down of any rider not on the squad of Marquis Flowers Delivery, which included defending champion and team leader Lars Truger, Klaus Weber, Tim Morton, Cody Doyle, Ulrich Spica, Andrew Barstow, Casey Miles, and Dirk Schumann. 
Truger banked four stage wins and claimed victory in New York, but would later test positive for growth hormones and EPO, a substance which controlled his red blood cell production. Truger claimed that the findings were a result of a lip balm he was given by his longtime and trusted image consultant, Terence Blemke. In a hearing conducted by the UCF and Tour of Appalachia Board of Governors, Truger told the panel that his recent fame following his 1997 victory had resulted in an overwhelming feeling of self-consciousness regarding the thinness of the champion cyclist's lips. I'd walk by a newsstand and there would be my face with those deflated chicken guts atop my chin, Truger said with tears streaming down his face. I was in a living hell. The German claimed that he was unaware of the substance, which was given to him as a roll-on, with the brand name and contents blacked out with a marker. Later, Truger sued his consultant. However, the case was dismissed after the UCF's investigation continued its probing into Truger's teammates, who all tested positive for similar drugs. And on the eve of their findings, the Georgia Journal published an article by premier sports essayist Ron Duchamp, containing notes and test results linking the entire Marquee team and its directors and doctors to a mass doping conspiracy and cover-up. The documents were provided by an unknown source, Duchamp, and subsequent reports referred to as the Mississippi Connection. Former Marquee rider and unofficial three-time stage winner of the Tour of Appalachia, Cody Doyle, said the following. Heading into the 97 Tour, we knew something was up. Lars was setting times nobody could touch. We'd be gassed and he'd take off. He was spending a lot of time in Mississippi. Somehow he had hooked up with this Austrian doctor or trainer living in Jackson County out on the lake. Tobias Brunig. Lars would spend weeks at a time down there. They got pretty close. Tobias worked for a few teams in Europe but was released after they didn't take to his unorthodox methods. Lars... Lars was in from the word go talking about how it was undetectable and as long as we were careful and methodical we'd never get caught and would be unbeatable I didn't know what to do I kept asking myself what would my wife think I mean I didn't have a wife at the time but had I I'm sure she wouldn't have approved unless she had been living a you know rather suburban life and wanted some excitement or danger I don't know we looked up to Lars I thought I couldn't help to hear them out Lars took the whole team down to Mississippi to meet this mystery man. Tobias Brunig. Just saying the name, you know? I mean, I'll be honest. He was a nice guy. Cordial, hospitable. One day we went swimming and he lent me some trunks. And I did a flip off the dock, even though I was scared. Later that night at the snake pit, he bought us another round of jalapeno poppers. You know, swell guy. I could see what Lars saw in him. On the road, we were basically glorified helpers. You know, looking out for Lars and making sure we won the team classification. And if the opportunity presented itself, maybe take a stage win. I wasn't a GC rider, but I wanted to wear the variegated jersey after Lars. I wanted to stand in Central Park in patches. So when the time came, yeah, I took the needle. We all did. And we became rock stars. As a result of the investigation, all riders of the Marquis Flower Delivery Team were stripped of their 1997 and 1998 titles, 
which included 15 stage wins, two black and white striped jerseys, two triangle pattern jerseys for the mountains competition, and Truger's two variegated jerseys. The continued efforts of the UCF's investigation into doping at the Tour of Appalachia, now aided by the American Anti-Doping Agency, would go on to expose assisted doping among several other teams, including the teams of Gilligan's Gator Jerky and Century Campgrounds. More than a race. The 2000s were met with severe scrutiny and public cynicism. Attendance at the Tour of Appalachia dropped drastically, and it soon became the butt of late-night jokes and the target of protesters. The roads of Appalachia were marred with a stain that new testing policies and procedures simply couldn't wipe away. It would take the youthful exuberance and extraordinary determination of a woman from Utah and a viral headline. Unlike the women's grand tours, which offer a separate, shortened running for women cyclists, the Tour of Appalachia operated as a men's only race since its inaugural running in 1934. After a somewhat lackluster circuit race in and around Central Park before the final men's stage of the 2013 Tour of Appalachia, which was viewed by the racers as nothing more than an exhibition for fans, with rider Becca Tapier calling the race a song and dance, the organizers abandoned their plans for a full women's tour the following year. But at the start of the 2014 cycling season, a mother from Eagle Village, Utah, was on a tear after winning the Women's NorCal Cycling Invitational and the notoriously grueling Women's Baja Desert Run. Her name was Linda Esposito. And she would find a ride with the Grab Bag Energy Gel cycling team to be the first ever woman to participate in the Tour of Appalachia. Commentator and celebrated sports writer for the Atlanta-based Social Sports Journal, Monica Carpenter, said the following in a 2016 documentary regarding her 2015 feature on the cycling sensation's momentous ride. It had always been a men's race, but nowhere does it exclude women. It had just been accepted over the years. Actually, there was one occasion in 1937 when a man by the name of Edward Edwards raced several stages posed as a woman in an attempt to distract the other riders. With support from Grab Bag, Lena had earned a spot on the tour after the qualifier in Pigeon Forge. The news of Linda Esposito riding in the 2014 Tour of Appalachia immediately became viral. There was suddenly this overwhelming surge of excitement. Nobody thought she would finish the first week. And when she did, something awoke in the country. Fans made signs and groups of guys painted L-I-N-A on their chest and stood on the sides of the road. The media followed her every pedal stroke that year, every gear shift. She was under a microscope the entire time. But the public, they cheered her. They cheered her every kilometer of the way. And the race was everywhere. You couldn't escape it. Bars would put it on. Times Square displayed it 50 feet tall. I mean, it was a big deal. People were invested. It was like a murder trial. Everyone wanted to know what happened to Lena that day on the tour. I remember crying when she pulled onto the mall in Central Park. I've never experienced anything so inspirational. It was like that scene in the movies. Only this was real. I just lost it. It was brilliant. She was brilliant. 
This was more than a race. This was so much more. Linda Esposito finished the 2014 Tour of Appalachia in the 145th position, a remarkable five and a half hours behind the variegated jersey, making her the first and only woman to complete the punishing three-week race. She became the symbol of perseverance in a world sullied by scandal. She had embodied the true essence of the tour. Every June, in the heart of the eastern United States, cycling fans from across the globe gather and wait on the iconic roads of the region's magnificent mountains and tranquil pasturage for a glimpse at history. It is a pastime rooted in the area's heritage, nurtured by greatness and blossoming annually in a vibrant showing of excellence. It is adaptive and resilient and finds light in the darkest of shadows. It is a source of wonderment and distinction. It is the Tour of Appalachia. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich and artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com.